screaming, this is super expensive. I bet you Kathy Wood would argue <laughs> that if, if all companies were innovative enough, that 100% of stocks should be at a P.E. ratio that high. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Whenever you want to flip it. What are we flipping? Pancakes? The coin? We can flip pancakes. We can flip birds. <laughs> you know, uh, Dougals, this morning I'm sick to my stomach. I'm not really, but you sent over an article with that exact quote regarding Dollar Tree prices, and I'm still laughing from how hyperbolic that article was. People are hyperbolic, and this is a, a CNN piece, what he's quoting specifically, but we've hit on dollar store economics before. We've talked about Dollar General. we talked about Dollar Tree and how uh, Dollar General is very much so going to the world of of things not costing a dollar but dollar tree even you know a few weeks back said it was starting to raise its prices yeah. and percentage wise you can say it's material right 25 percent increases 50 percent increases from a dollar yeah. to a dollar 25 or a dollar to dollar 50. but there's a cnn article where the quotes that people were like the reactionary quotes people had one of them was i am sick to my stomach and it was them <laughs> trying to buy like a dollar 25 I don't know, whatever, like, does it matter what it was as opposed to a dollar? People are hyperbolic, which makes up for a lot of hilarity, if I'm being honest. Let me throw you, I was reading this this morning, and I, I had to screenshot this section. I forgot to mention this in the pre-show meeting, because these direct quotes, I don't know that any of them are factual, but they'll make you laugh. So it says, we all in the Dollar Tree community hoped that it wouldn't happen, adding that the dollar price was something you could count on. There was no doing math in your head or anything like that, she said. You could go into a dollar tea with $10 and walk out with 10 items. Well, first of all, that's not true at all because you have to pay tax, but I kind of get her point. So although Dollar Tree has put up new signs in the stores that say they'll offer new items that have more thrills, Dougals, more thrills for that extra 25 cents. Is that possible? <laughs> she says she has not yet seen the change. It's like they're promising you something more uh, for 25 cents, but it's not. It's all just the same quality and same types of products. So people are fired up, man. And I get it. I'm one of them. 25% inflation? I mean, we got turkey going on up in the Dollar Tree. Well, the, you know what I mean? As I, as I read the article, though, that's what's so fascinating to me. The people they interviewed are not nearly as interested in economics and finance as we are. And they're, Which is, they're they like, could have interviewed nearly anyone, like in the anybody, world. yeah. <laughs> but they basically there was no mention to the fact that how the macroeconomic is environment environment has changed in the last like twenty four to forty eight months, and how that's it's just a ramification of that. I mean, a dollar is hardly worth anything. So to have your entire store brand based around that, what are you gonna sell? Like nothing but toothbrushes. When I went to the Dollar General, I got Band-Aids. So, toothbrushes and Band-Aids. <laughs> that, that's, that's much worse in the product marketing front. Like, if you want to rename the store. So, I think Dollar Tree's 
time. Well, they were already doing like the, you know, if you bought tin foil or saran wrap or aluminum foil or whatever, it in was the conspiracy like... department. <laughs> I mean, All I right. was thinking for actual like food food prep, but it was already like thirty seven feet where a normal roll would be like a <laughs> yes. hundred feet yeah. to try and get to the dollar price point. So, oh man. All right. Anyway, moving on. Let's jump into this thing. I'm going to kick it off with some listener mail. We got listener mail from Jonathan this week. And this is what I'm going to call when a, when a bubble looks like a bubble looks like a bubble. Because what the listener mail is, it's this Washington Street Journal. Washington, Wall Street what? Journal. <laughs> what? That was like me with Columbia and NYU last week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the Wall Street Journal article on Melania Trump and her NFT collection. So when Melania is hitting the NFT train, you get off. Like, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You get off at the next station from that NFT train. So Melania Trump has come out with this NFT collection. And she's selling watercolors of her eyes. She's selling iconic, broad-brimmed, one-of-a-kind hats that, she, that she's worn. It, well, uh, NFTs of, of, the, of these items. Yep. Do what you will with this. Uh, I would, uh, my research advice is to not click the links in this article and not go in and look in more detail, but just know that this is occurring. Uh, and uh, listen, if you want to laugh at me, I told you this offline before, but uh, when this came out, I was like, what is this hocus pocus? And then I got really excited because it's on Solana. And I was like, oh, I, I, I think there's some, so uh, for those who don't know, most NFTs uh, have historically been minted on Ethereum, which is more expensive and, and has some quirks, but definitely uh, has a better brand and is more popular than some of the upstarts. And so she's she's doing her NFTs on one of the upstarts. So I, I went to Dougal's. I was like, listen, this is clearly the future. And then we kind of walked through some of the business history of that family. And this could be a curse for Solana, where this yes. Solana is worth absolute trash. <laughs> So take take with it what you will. All I'd ask is that you laugh at me when you do these. Dougals, I will say, I know I know we don't want to spend much time on this. Like some of these pictures actually look kind of artsy. I mean, it's a watercolor. It looks more that more uh like it took more to do than some of the gorillas or monkeys or whatever is out. I mean, the one um oh gosh. Well she's gonna do high Board Ape Yacht Club is like <laughs> It's kind of cool, but I, I don't know that I'd call it art. Is it? Is it? I mean, uh, okay. Moving on. I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to piggyback off that for a sec and go into a little, little quick hit. I'm going to drop three pieces of multimedia, I'll say, out there for you. So the first is, it's a writer I enjoy from the, uh, that writes for the LA Times, uh, Michael Hitzik. Sorry, Michael Hitzik. I am off today. Uh, have you listened to, have you read uh, Michael Hitzik stuff? LA Times. You know, the name doesn't ring a bell. I'm sure I have, but no. I recommend just a really, really thoughtful pieces. And I'm going to call this category of things I'm going to mention, We Know Better. But the title of the article is Good Riddance to 2021, the stupidest ever, the stupidest year in US history. So Good Riddance 2021, the stupidest year in US history. That's what the, the title of the article. The point that he's making is what I brought up. Like we, there are things that we just know better. And so he brings up some years from yonder. He's like, back in 1846, when we did this, we maybe didn't know that it was a dumb thing. But in 2021, 
like we knew, right? And so the stuff that he brings up are things like vaccines tend to do well against disease. It's like like stuff yeah. like that. Like we, we like we have that history. Um, NFT. I I bring it up because of Melania. He's like NFTs, meme stocks. We all knew that these were going to lead to like fraud and people getting cleaned out. Like we yeah. we've seen this movie before, but we still do it. Um, he brings up a whole bunch of other stuff, but I bring that up because I do think it's important psychologically, like to know when you know better. And even, even in the cases when you know that you know better, just, you can still participate in some stuff, but just like, just understand, um, that this time is different generally might be like a different version, but not all that different. Two other pieces of multimedia I'll bring up and then I'll let you react. Uh, don't look up on Netflix. I recommend if folks have Netflix subscriptions and have not seen it, I recommend it. It is, it's another, I think it falls in that same category of like, just look, uh, which is the opposite of what it's called, but like, like generally just look. And the last piece is a book I read last year called Being Wrong. Um, it was a subject I didn't know a lot about. And so I decided to partake. And so it's called Being Wrong by Catherine Schultz. And it's just like the history of humanness and why it's like inhuman nature to air. Um, and I, I think it's, it was like really fascinating to look at a, to look at that topic. And so I put all of those multimedia, one book, one Netflix movie, one article, choose your poison or do all three, but you know better. You just uh, set up a political landmine here for me to, to, to try and <laughs> say something stupid, but let's first and foremost, you probably didn't catch it on first listen guys, but what Dougal's just did there is he said, I read a book called being wrong. Because I don't know much about it, fine. <laughs> that you're basically never wrong. You're probably implying that you're never wrong, and that's hilarious. So yeah, my my, you, my wife, when I was reading that book, she was like, "Do you really need to read it? Because I think you're." <laughs> There's a a great book that I bet has some similar themes called uh, I think it's The Power of Bad. Um, I can find it and put it on the Twitter, but just awesome about the stuff you don't think about on the flip side uh, of you know in this case being wrong so Dougal's there's a lot there right you covered so much between the article and don't look up and everything else some reason it reminded me of your framing about hey it's okay to be in crazy bubble land if you want to buy an nft buy an nft if you want to play with some meme stocks play some meme stocks but you have to stay grounded and level in terms of what game you're playing and and where you actually are and i think what hammered that home for me this week is this chart i saw and very rarely do I just send you a chart. I sent you a chart of NASDAQ 100 performance from uh, January 20 or January of 2000 to January of 2003. Any guesses on how far that baby went down in those two years, Douglas? 80%. 82.9%. I mean, it's one of those things I know, like it's inherent to me, but I forget, man. And if I don't look at it every 24 months or something, 82%. So for those people that are trying to stay grounded, if potentially some of those things you mentioned, like meme stocks or NFTs are in bubble territory like that, you might be talking about an 83% drop. You might be talking about more, you might be talking about less. Like, are you psychologically ready for that? I guess is where my head went as you you went through um, your talking points there. Yeah, I think it's, it's exactly right. And some may not have the like innate constitution for things like that. And you should know that uh, sometimes I think you may need to, I'll say exercise yourself. Like, I don't mean working out necessarily, but in different ways, this is a, what you've called the story I tell myself. 
which might be the story I tell myself. But because a lot of what I end up buying, it tends to be expensive relative to other things in the market. It's more volatile, generally. And one reason that one reason I, I check the markets a lot because I just really interested in the markets. Another reason I check the markets a lot is because um, and, and look at charts like that nearly all the time is because it's healthy for me, or at least I believe the story I tell myself is it's healthy for me to to like grok, like fully understand the volatility that exists in there so that when things that are even happening right now in the market, right, for over, since mid-November, but again, since the beginning of the year, uh, software stocks are getting hit, expensive stocks are getting hit yeah. pretty hard right now, right? And I'm like, my mentality, honestly, right now is like, ah, it's not good, but it's not good a lot. Like not good actually happens quite a lot, like in my exactly. portfolio in the market. So good psychology. Yeah. So um, that reminds me of another chart we looked at this week, which was uh, the stock for Zoom communications. I think folks probably remember what happened to that stock uh, and that company in, say, March uh, 2020, right? The world is freaking out about coronavirus, and no one has really worked from home. Very few, I should say, have, have worked from home permanently. Yeah, not and most... Yeah, yeah lo most large companies send all their employees home and people go, I don't know what this means. I gosh, I remember some of the conversations we had about work around if the collaboration was even possible and what tools we'd use. And that seems crazy now. But so the stock just skyrocketed it up. And any guesses where it is today, Diggles? <laughs> Put your game down, flip it and reverse it. <laughs> it's exactly where it was in uh, March 2020. The reason I mentioned this, there, it goes back to the psychology piece, but as investors, so many times we say to ourselves, you know, like, oh man, if I could only go back to that point in time and pick up that stock, I really missed out, you know? And now like, you can. There's regret. Well, exactly. Now you can. And that happens all the time. So um, what I do, and it's funny because Douglas and I, for the year end review show, uh, had some back and forth about some of the things we had said in the past year is I'll write down a, a stock and a price and I'll just sit on my, just sit around. Right. And more often than not, the stock is going to get to the price. So, uh, this last year I did that with Alibaba. The first time we did a high level analysis, I said, listen, if it comes about 20% more down, um, I'm jumping in. That's exactly what happened. Um, and there's a, a few others where that's happened. Uh, there's a really famous uh, professor, and his name escapes me right now, but I think he's one of the Columbia guys, or maybe it's Eugene Pharma at uh, University of Chicago, that starts off the semester, and this tells you how long ago it was, by having everyone bring in the business section of a newspaper, right? And he says, pick three of your favorite stocks. I'm kind of butchering the story, but the intent, you'll still get there. And they pick stocks and then he goes all right now look at the 52 week high and the 52 week lows what happens is there's typically about a 50 percent variance between those two metrics in your typical year so i sorry if i'm rambling here but the point is this is built that variability and fluctuation is built in and there's great times to pick stuff up in in your average 52 week cycle this reminds me of my favorite quote um, legit, this is not like a Dougal's quip, legit favorite quote is a T.S. Eliot quote from the four quartets. And it is, we shall never cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring 
will be to arrive where we first started and know the place for the first time. I love that quote because to me, what it means is that oftentimes you end up with the same thought, the same idea in the same location, could be in the same relationship, whatever it might be that you had before. But now you saw that maybe last time when you were 20, now you're 30 and you have a fully different perspective in it. And with a, with a stock like Zoom, just to use that as the one example, yeah. like if you have the Zoom March 2020 price, think about all the stuff we know about Zoom now, right? Zoom now has, they have um, a more stable uh, employer partner base, like clientele. Um, their employees are more educated about the market. They have stronger security than they had before. It's a better business fundamentally then. And you can revisit that price. So like you're back there, you know more, what's your decision point now? Um, so I drop that quote all the time, like at work and stuff. Cause I, I'm like, we might do, sometimes you do a whole bunch of work and you get at the same answer you had before, but now you have a, you have a more clear, different perspective, um, than you had on it. Yeah. I really love that. Um, it's really good stuff. And the, the question with zoom specifically is I personally didn't want to own it at 2020 prices, but like. It's interesting, right? It's interesting to get back to where you are. And I I just don't know that your average investor um, realizes how much fluctuation is built into the, the system inherently and how many deals are out there if you're willing to be patient. And I'm, I'm going to dip back into the fishbowl to, to tag onto that. There's an article that came out, might've been a couple of weeks back, sometime in the past couple of weeks called Be Curious. Um, it's a guest post on the Collaborative Fund um, by Ted Lamad. I think is how you pronounce the name, Managing Director at the Carnegie Institution for Science. Um, so the name of the, the post is Be Curious, and it goes through, it's like a whole lot of categories in there. It's, it's worth a read um, that he, he talks about a whole different, a lot, a lot of different stuff. But one of the sections that I want to tag on for that is a section he calls Baselines. And this section is one that's it's where you, you basically anchor yourself. We've talked about anchoring before yeah. from a bias perspective. You anchor yourself and that now becomes your baseline, right? And so if you anchor yourself onto, as we talked about last year, like 17% after inflation returns, then disappointment, right? Is like, is going to ensue. One of the things he brings up, and there was a comedian that had a, a bit on this a few years back that I really loved, is why plain Wi-Fi. Is he's like, the, I'm gonna I'm gonna a channel the comedian to talk about what uh, what Ted talks about here. He's like I'm sitting on a plane, and this guy next to me, I see him slam his laptop shut and throw it in the back of the uh, in the back of the, the seat in front of him. I'm like whoa, like what's up? He's like the Wi-Fi is not working again, and he goes and in my head I'm thinking like we are sitting in a tin can, flying thirty thousand feet in the air across the world, like something that would marvel people. You know, like a hundred years ago, <laughs> but now you're anchored on the fact that you can't tweet like yeah. from this high, <laughs> right? And it's again anchoring. Like we we end up in this place where we set a baseline that is like set up for not non disappointment, right? You have PE ratios like in the market that are set up for perfection, and anything mm -hmm. that's less than that ba baseline that you set is is going to create not only disappointment but in you know our world a lot of volatility. <laughs> it reminds me of the quote that says when when uh businesses complain about people staring at their phones or colleagues or friends complain about other friends staring at their phones it's like of course they're staring at their phones they have 
the world's they have a supercomputer in their pocket with the world's most interesting content customized for them that's available to them anytime they like. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's our anchoring these days, yeah. right? That's the expectations. It's like, oh, and if you don't have the world's fastest 5G, then you're going to be pissed off about it. I, I can really relate to that. When you talk about price for perfection, and I don't want to talk over that if there's more things from the article that you want to get to, but the stat I saw this week was... Um, we keep going back to the Scott McNally quote from Sun Microsystems from the early 2000s, right? And what he talks about in that quote, when he talks about how expensive his company was, is 10 times price to sales uh, ratio. As of today, 15% of the S&P 500 is, has a price to sales ratio greater than 10. That crushes what it was back in 2000 when it was about 7%. That's a lot. That's we a keep lot. talking bubble stuff and I hate that we do it so frequently, but like there is so much out there screaming, this is super expensive. I bet you Kathy Wood would argue <laughs> that if if all companies were innovative enough, that 100% of stocks should be <laughs> at a PE ratio that high. <laughs> then me, then we, we all could bask in 40% annual returns oh i don't want to talk kathy wood don't, but we don't man, have to do it i just dropped, I dropped I the line like, it's up to you she's you make she's make gonna have make good choices <laughs> she's gonna have some pain coming uh all right let's talk inflation if you don't mind me pulling out of the fishbowl everyone's talking about inflation basically we've been talking about inflation we told you about the i bombs and everything else how to make seven percent on your money risk-free a while back and obviously that's not investment advice it's a research recommendation but because the year wrapped up there was 10 more inflation articles actually scratch that a thousand more inflation articles written this week right we've talked on some of these things before but i want to do a recap on what's driving the highest inflation since 1982 because there's a few things that are playing significant factors here so used cars and trucks off the charts, man. Since the early uh, 2019, the uh, percentage change of used cars and trucks is up like 38%. Wild. Yeah. And I picked this time to buy a used car too. Yeah. And can I tell you what I think is the, the worst part of that? And maybe only the worst because I'm experiencing it right now. But I, I hadn't really thought about this exactly. So uh, we, we leased my aunt's car for her. Right. Her lease coming to an end soon. And so I was talking to the dealership about what's next. And she really likes the car. So we're like, okay, so we'll buy it. And what's interesting because of this, like the used car thing, and it's like effectively on the three year lease, it's like not quite here, but it's effectively taken off, like made like a year and a half to two years of payments, like a non thing. Yeah. Yep. And I just like, can, can we just keep the lease going? <laughs> like, is there, how do we? No, is the answer they, they gave. Um, Man, I was talking to a friend this week. He's looking at a new SUV. You can buy a, a used one for 64000 and a new one for 52000 Now, the new one probably has some delays in production and is six months out. But can you imagine buying an older car for $12,000 more? I mean, that, apparently that's what the market says right now. It's really fascinating. Dougals, yeah, yeah. I love to give you a hard time about this, but I assume when you go to the dealership, you say, I'm a long trend momentum. Have you heard about my Farfin model? If car prices <laughs> are going up, 
Oh, tell me which car prices are going up the most. I want in on that. I don't care about how much it costs. So I think this lease is just like perfect for you. Throw that in the portfolio, baby. It didn't feel good. <laughs> no, it doesn't okay. feel good. It didn't feel good. You just salt bait me. <laughs> Sorry. All right, what else? So, so we got used, used no, cars. Inflation. Used cars. Gas prices. So gas prices, there's yep. so much going on with that. And some of it's, we went into a global pandemic. So grass prices fell off a cliff because no one was allowed to even get their cars again we go back to that march 2020 time frame like people weren't even sure if you could put gas in your car without getting covid <laughs> the, well, the oil went negative remember when people like gas stations in dc like ran out of gas and south carolina ran out of gas oil prices exactly. negative yeah so uh living room furniture dining room furniture i'm gonna call this furniture outdoor equipment and supplies all way up about 15%. And then um, if you talk travel, hotels and meals are up about 15% since the start of 2019. But airfare continues to be down. Airfare is at about a 20% discount, uh, all things considered. And I think to me, the airfare piece is easy to understand that story because there's still, it's more of a pain to travel than it used to be. There's more restrictions around it. But it's funny that hotels aren't aren't trending in the exact same direction that hotels would have actually gotten more expensive during this time because you can still get to hotels without flying yeah right i guess the what's a when i look at airfare prices it seems like to me this may be obvious to others it seems yeah. like to me that the difference it's not that airfare prices are less expensive than what i typically saw it's that they stay at that price like the the fluctuation doesn't exist the same way that it used to but like the uh, but the ultimate price I pay is the ultimate price I might have paid if I'd bought it, you know, early enough, like before. It, but it, like I, I don't, I'm not finding like these incredible deals. Yep. It's more that the, it's just a kind of a steady price, and the volatility is not there. Yeah, I have seen some of that too. Last thing I'll mention here: um, fast food prices, sit down dining, both up about seven percent. So I guess those are keeping fit uh, pace with inflation. But yep. for a while, we had a a running joke on the show and on the show's Twitter about you know the 14 dollar burrito and <laughs> that's a real thing man there's still you can spend 15 bucks and get a handful of garbage at, that someone's calling like meals quite literally <laughs> and quite. It, i mean it's it's inflation and it's skimpflation the term that i really like grown to love because yeah. in some cases it's just it's prices are going up but you're getting the same thing in some cases it's Prices aren't going up, but you're getting worse service and like worse goods. That's the skimpflation. Like, so the it's the price per what you're getting is different. In some cases, the price going up and you getting a handful of garbage. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. I sent you a picture of that. Uh, what was it? It was advertised as like a like farmstead eggs deluxe or something like that. At this hotel I was staying at, it was none of those things. <laughs> this stuff had never seen a farm. <laughs> I can't, I cannot even confirm that there were eggs. And there was nothing deluxe about it. It was, it was a brown box of garbage, man. <laughs> yeah, it, really, it really was. <laughs> Thank you so much yeah. for sending me that picture. All right, what's in your fishbowl? One of the things that uh, is a little bit scurry to me is that I feel like people, individuals, human beings are in the United States of America are setting themselves up to run out of money in a world where they don't need to. Yeah. So I said running out of money is maybe an aggressive statement, but let me let me throw a couple reasons out there 
And, uh, and some, a couple of things I saw recently, again, that reinforced that for me. I say this because we have, people have a lot of debt. Now, household debt to GDP is not a high ratio, but amount of household debt is very high, mm-hmm. right? And it's at a time where I'm going to go to uh, the most recent JP Morgan, um, what are they called? State of the Markets, I think. Guide to the Markets. It's Guide great. to the Markets. Yeah. yeah. Always fantastic. They show that, as we all know, right, number of job openings through the roof, number of people quitting through the roof, right, as well. And if you look at, if you take both of those things and then also look at the every Thursday, you know, um, is released the number of people that are filing for like new claims for unemployment, it's Mm -hmm. low. It's at like the pre-pandemic level um, or close to. About, yeah. Yeah. And so what you have is a whole bunch of companies looking for jobs, a whole bunch of people that used to have jobs saying they don't want the jobs. And and then the the triage moment, or you know, that's kind of saying the that people aren't necessarily looking for them. All that which makes sense given the other two things. And and I kind of say, if we're in a whole bunch of debt and there are jobs available and people are living off their stimulus checks, and by the time they go back to look for jobs, potentially, potentially, this might not be true, but for many of them, automation may have increased, the demand may have decreased, right? Because there's like a cycle in here that's that's self-fulfilling, where like if you start to run out of money, demand then goes down from consumers. If demand then goes down, job openings now go down and you getting that job becomes harder. Like it, it's like this whole thing. I feel like we're setting ourselves up to run out of money. So, so that's like, that's the thing that scares me. And Yahoo Finance, um, they, they had uh, recently, I saw, they had like some Census Bureau data they put out there that was looking at a survey of people showing um, how hard or easy it was for them to pay their bills. And they're showing that people are, it's, it's inching more, but people are saying it's becoming increasingly more difficult than they pay their bills, but we're still quitting in droves and we're still not like accepting job offers. Now, for the past two weeks, you have seen the number of uh, unemployment claims, like new unemployment claims go up a little bit. And so maybe there's some kind of reversal there, but it's scary. Like this is, this is the stuff that's scary to me. Oh, I'm so glad you went there, but there's so many layers to that onion you just peeled, right? So one is, um, personal story for me, our, our grocery store workers went on strike in the past week. And so my wife and I are debating this, right? Like I, I totally get it. And I'm for everyone making a fair living wage, um, without a doubt, but the longer they aren't there, the more incentive there is to either replace them for others that are willing to work for that wage or replace them completely with automation. So uh, I'm trying to tell a a personal story here because I think it hammers home. I'd be curious for your thoughts. I go to this grocery store. I recognize the people. They've all worked there for a decade. They're nice people. They make my day better. When when one of my favorite clerks has a day off, do I notice that they're not there? No. Most of the time I go through the robotic checkout and scan my own groceries anyway. Do I have any recollection of who put the the groceries on the shelves? Absolutely not, because that happens overnight. So am I going to be upset if these people are replaced by robots? Unfortunately, I'm probably not. And I mean, for someone like a large grocer, I can't even imagine how quickly the economics makes sense to have robots replace uh, people for some of these jobs. It it just seems like a no-brainer. And going to the 
you know, we've seen this movie before. We know better since like we, we have, we know what happens here. I gave a talk. I want to say it was two years ago, but that was right before the pandemic. So maybe it's three. I don't know what time is now. Yeah. Maybe like yeah. three years ago. And uh, what I was talking about was how we were in the hottest job market for 50 years. Right. Which that like everything was showing that Wall Street Journal, all these articles about how hot the job market was then and how when that happens, whenever that reverses, the people that it like messes with the most are always the less fortunate. It's the frontline worker. It's the low income worker always. But but when we're in the hot job market, what's so difficult psychologically is when you're in the hot, hot job market, it's those individuals who maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long time feel the most power. Like, and that's rare, right? They have leverage right now. Like legit, the frontline worker, like this is not universal, right? But many frontline worker positions, they have leverage. For the first time, they're wanted everywhere. Like they can demand more. They demand more wages, right? You see all these wage increases going up. You demand more benefits, like, and that's really powerful. But when everything flips, you also are the, the first to go. It's, and it happens like that. Like it happens so quickly. It's really, it's scary um, for me. The thing, the thing I don't know, and, and I hate that there's people's impacted. So I, I'm more fascinated with like the concept here. I, I don't want to make it personal, but like, I'm not sure how much leverage they have, you know, in, in this union negotiation for the grocery store, I think they're offering something like 18 bucks an hour. Well, Hey, if you're worth 22 bucks an hour, go get the job that pays you 22 bucks an hour, by all means. Like I support that. If you don't have a job that pays you more than 18 bucks an hour, how much leverage do you have? I, I think it's, I completely agree with your points, especially the one about the fragility here. Like when things flip, because what's happened around here, and this goes back to the inflation conversation and other things, is that the level of service is dropping off at some of these places, whether it's a Dollar Tree or a fast food restaurant or a sit down restaurant, that I find myself less eager to spend money there because the value for the money feels less and the experience has been degraded because of the the trouble filling some of those jobs. And so that ultimately, I think that means consumers like me pull our money away from those facilities, which causes things to flip really quickly because all of a sudden you're not in demand anymore. That fast food restaurant might be closing instead of hiring workers yep. at prices that, you know, at hourly wages, which they hadn't seen previously. Agreed. And I'll drop one more concept on this and we, we can, uh, we can skidoot on, I'm going to drop one more concept and I'm going to tie it back. I'm going to make one of my Dougal's broad leaps to <laughs> analogous leaps. So when you say, but do they have leverage, right? This is, I think it's a, it's a really strong question. And to me, it's a difference between collective leverage and individual leverage. And it's also the difference between collective value and individual value. Frontline workers right now, as a like as a group, have a lot yeah. of leverage. And frontline workers as a group are highly valuable. But what that can often be mistaken for is I, as an individual worker, not you as a human being, like I'm not talking about the human yeah. and you know what you bring, but you as like a role, as an individual role, don't have as much leverage necessarily or aren't perceived as value, but you as an as a group are. The analogous jump I make is going back to, uh, you know, we've talked many times, and this maybe hits on baselines too, around how you can easily get confused in like a market like we've had over the last whatever number of years as to your individual value as an investor 
or the collective value of just being an investor like during this time. And, mm-hmm. and that that's like particularly different. And you have to be able to know the difference between those those two things. Well, I think you've um, nicely articulated the point I'm struggling with in the frontline workers is that the value as a group versus value as an individual piece. There's a lot of nuance there. And I just find it fascinating, especially when unions get involved. So we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. I don't, uh, with your investor analogy, are you implying that your value as an investor relating to like riding the larger wave of the retail cash flows there and thinking that maybe there's skill tied up in that when really you're just riding the currents? Exactly. When, you, when you're riding a bull market, and that's more of a psychological thing, it's, it's not analogous to like from a, a market condition standpoint to the economic you know, discussion we were just having. But it's psychologically the importance of understanding when your current, I'll say, success value skill set is the success value skill set of a broader marketer trend, yeah, or is it the yep. success value skill set of you and your individual behaviors? I just finished again Howard Mark's book, The Most Important Thing. Um, thank you for pointing me to that that book, by the way. It's like now an annual read. Uh, I love that. Um, I need to read that. I'll re- I'll pick it up today because um, this is the perfect time. As we were talking about our investor psychology and history, this is a perfect time to read that book. And one of the things, that, the quote that's on there is what the wise person does in the beginning, the fool does in the end. And it's it's the idea of kept grabbing on to the, the trend or what you see or whatever it is after the value of it, you know, might um, already be gone. And I think that that's much more easily done when you don't understand where the value came from in the first place. The, the, the market dynamics are leading to um, changes in pay and promotion rates, uh, demographics happening with retirement and everything else might be uh, a huge factor in promotions just as much as performance and everything else. So I'm going to noodle on that a little bit more. Um, love the conversation there. What's next in the fishbowl? Oh, oh. So let's just talk Zynga a little bit, if you don't mind. Oh, so first Arby, of all, Arby's, we got the meats. Go for it. Wait, what? What, what does Arby's have to do with Zynga? You about to talk about arbitrage? <laughs> That's right. So Zynga's getting acquired, Diggles. Zynga's getting acquired by Take Two. I don't know much about Take Two. Um, do you? I I don't really know much about the gaming space, to be honest. Grand Theft Auto, man. They they make Grand Theft Auto. That's that's Grand yeah, Theft Auto, yeah. uh, and there's a oh and and Words with Friends in Farmville, right? For Zynga, yeah. For, for Zynga, yeah, yep. So here's what's happening. I just I just had enough time to kind of dig in this week that I got to my R. I can't believe you're calling it Arby's. <laughs> we I love arbitrage, meat. man. I I just I always love arbitrage in every aspect of life, whether it's buying a used bike or like a sweater. I just love arbitrage opportunities, and this really piqued my interest. So the Zynga stock was trading around six bucks a share, and the acquisition is going to happen at nine dollars and six eighty six cents, right? And I want to find the exact breakdown. The way that's going to happen is $3.50 in cash and $6.36 in Take-Two stock. I love these opportunities. So 
if all is well, here's what can happen, Dougals. I'll lay out the bull case and then the bear case, and you can tell me I'm an idiot. After the acquisition was announced, like I think um, early this week, the stock was still trading around 844 a share, even though the acquisition is supposed to happen mid-year. So I think it's pretty easy easy for your average listener to understand that there's an arbitrage opportunity. If if you've never been through an acquisition as an investor, jump in. Yeah, sorry. Just I just want to throw out the definition that we're using for arbitrage, just to to be clear, because I'm like okay, bringing up fast food chains and my Arby's and whatnot. Um, so arbitrage being if there's a price in a stock that is X, right? And in this case, we're saying that someone's saying they're going to buy it for Y, which is larger than X, but the price of the current price of the stock has not gone up to Y. That we're saying arbitrage is like potential free money that sits in the difference between those two prices that you might be able to take advantage of. Yeah. And so Dougal's obviously it's, it's not free because if it was, it, and if markets were perfectly efficient, it would immediately go, the price of Zynga would immediately go to $9.86. Now let's talk about the reason why it's not doing that and what typically happens in acquisitions. So uh, my strategy of buying really d- dirt cheap stocks often goes through acquisitions. I don't think I've been one through in like three i've been through one in about three years but typically if you're buying these uh companies with solid fundamentals that are deeply discounted they're ripe for a takeover because one of their competitors sees that and goes gosh i'd 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 love to have their warehouses or their logistics system or even their supply chain whatever you know like they just see value so i feel like i'm fairly familiar with these things what typically happens is the acquisition is announced and there's an immediate jump in the stock price to try and get close to what I'll call um, more true value, which would be the acquisition price. But then the acquisition is far from guaranteed, right? There's all sorts of hurdles. You talk about things that have happened in semiconductor holdings of yours or a lot of consolidation in cell phone networks where- 5.9 uh, last year. Remember 5.9 was gonna get purchased by Zoom and didn't end up going through. That was an example of what we talked about in the pod here, yep. Yep. So you have to jump through all the government regulatory framework. Are you uh, creating too much of a monopoly? There's all these things that make it uncertain. There's also just the boards get cold feet and eventually back out. Now, some acquisitions are structured. So if the acquiring party backs out, there's still some sort of payment to be handed over. I mean, there's this gets really complex, guys. And again, not investment advice, but this is something that I found interesting this week. So as I watched the thing, the price moved up north of nine bucks, nine dollars a share, and I feel like the arbitrage opportunity at this point is pretty limited. But I do have a limit order out there because I talked about this earlier, right? The variability of things. I think as we get closer to the acquisition, if there's no negative press about the acquisition not actually going through, but if the market falls off a cliff, Zynga's stock will get caught up in that the tide yep. going out, right? Yep. And so I get excited about that. I'll give a hypothetical here. If stocks go down 30% in the next three months, Zynga's stock is not going to go down 30% in all likelihood, but it might go down 20%. And it might allow me an arbitrage opportunity approaching a buck 50, two bucks a share for like a very short window of time in, in a couple months turnaround. So I'm keeping a close eye on that. But what will more likely happen is it will gradually float towards that $9.86. 
and there will be almost no reason, you know, like you'll be making pennies yeah. Yeah. Uh, and taking a risk that the acquisition falls acquisition falls through. And if that happens, Zynga stock's probably going to trend back towards the six bucks a share that it was trading at uh, prior to the news being announced. So there's definitely a risk here. The thing I love about this is it's all probabilistic outcomes yeah. and the range of outcomes gets pretty narrow. It's either acquisition happens, acquisition doesn't happen, or somewhere in between with some sort of cash changing hands. And if you get confident about assigning probabilities to those things, those things, you can actually calculate a weighted probability of the true value. And if there's a disconnect from that, I think there's a play here. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'm going to follow along the story with you. I'm curious to see where this goes. Yeah, it'd be fun if something exciting happens and I can actually yeah. take a uh, position. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I should mention on that front is uh, tax consequences, just yeah. so yeah. people know. So, like, it, right now, I might be able to, uh, there might be an arbitrage opportunity of around a 10% return in around six months. That might sound enticing, but with the risk you're taking on and the fact that you'd have to pay short term capital gains, like, do I really get excited about something like that? I kind of don't. It's more work than it's worth in most cases when there's only a 10% um, yeah. or so arbitrage opportunity. So, all right. You got anything I, else? I have one last thing in my fishbowl. So the last thing I got in my fishbowl is about taxi cabs. Remember that? Do you remember taxi cabs? For those yeah. that, that may not be familiar, prior <laughs> to Uber and Lyft, there were these motorized chariots known as taxi cabs. <laughs> joking. Um, so. I found this piece to be uh, quite interesting. It's from in the Stanford Business School journal. I don't know what it's actually called, but whatever the Stanford Business School puts out. And it's called The Tipping Point, The Subtle Psychology and Economics of Taxi Fares. So what this, what this person did was they, they first raised a question themselves and said, all right, so tips, tips are like an interesting thing, right? That doesn't necessarily exist everywhere, but it does exist um, in the US. And Tips typically are in this spot where you say, I believe that if I tip my service next time might be better. It's like a, a paying for future good service is like psychologically what they threw out in this article. And they said, but with taxis, and especially they were looking at New York City taxis, they went with taxis, like you're not going to get the same taxi person, right? You're not going to get the same taxi driver. It's kind of going yeah. back to the grocery store, what you mentioned, like you're not going to get the same you know, person necessarily, especially in the I world mean, where I believe their breakdown with it when it's like, you know, you're spending a night uh near a bar and there's one or two bartenders and the yeah. first drink or couple of drinks you're trying yes, to tip for the so night. you can get their attention later in the night. But yeah, yeah with taxis, that's it's not the same yeah. dynamic at all. So like, so what what is the deal with tipping for taxis? Like that was that was the the question that they raised themselves. So they went because uh, credit cards became like so big, they're able to track payments um, for New York City taxi cabs. So they took the data. This is mostly, I think what they looked at was pre-pandemic because the pandemic just threw off everything, yeah. right? In accordance with this. So they have a data set of $1 billion, sorry, 1 billion New York City taxi trips that were paid for with credit cards. So they have this database they can take a look at. Um, and it allowed them to, to get a sense for what's actually happening with tips. So what they observed is one, 97% of customers left a tip in the taxi. And so they, they took that as a sign that this is a social norm. Like it's a, it is a thing, right? So it kind of, it reaffirmed their reason for the question of like taxi tipping is a thing. And then often yeah. the social norm tip, the amount was roughly 20%. 
of the fair on average, right? So I went, okay, so that's that's some data. Then they noticed that as fares go up, percentage goes down generally. And so they're saying like the difference between someone saying like it's $5 ride, a $10 ride, and I'm going to give 20%, it changes when it's a $50 ride. Like now, now that amount has kind of shifted. So these are some of the, we have the question. This is some of the context from the data that they saw. Oh, the last piece um, is that there, there's a default menu, right? That's like you see it in restaurants and stuff now mm-hmm. too, where it's like, do you want to tip 15%, 20%, 25%, right? Or you can do custom. And yeah. 60% of people would go off the default menu. So this is like some data that, they, that they, they had as context. So then they wanted to figure out what is, and this is what I found most interesting. They wanted to figure out what is the, like what's the value that people are getting from that default menu, which also can lead to them then calculating what they believe is the amount of what they call welfare. Like what they mean by that is like the amount of uh, benefit, like broad benefit, like that's going to both parties. So what they found is that it's roughly a dollar. I think it was like 90 cents was the value that people got from going off that default menu. Like, and the value that what they attributed to is the non-calculation. Like they went, it's worth almost a dollar for people to not have to calculate the tip. Okay. When you say, let, let me just clarify that point. Yeah. Cause it's so interesting. Is that additional tip given to the cab driver based on the screen? Yeah, it, it is. Or because another way you could interpret value is like that. 90 more cents the user experience for that ride got 90 cents better because they had a touch screen to tip with at the end you're saying you inflated the tips of the taxi cab driver by 90 cents yes and what they what they actually say in the piece is that they're saying that it's actually value to both parties like is the way that they're trying to say it's a benefit to both parties for what you stated there's it's the user benefit of like the mental anguish of not having to make the calculation <laughs> there's yeah. a, like a benefit to that and there's the 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 benefit that comes as a result of that to the driver and the way they looked at this is they said when people went to the custom tip how much do they typically tip for that like that level of ride and mm-hmm. so if you look at you know you look at the difference between those two it came out to be about 90 cents which given that there were about 250,000 trips per day roughly and in new york city they said the fact that that menu exists was worth roughly $200,000 in benefit between driver and, and, and rider. Now, none of this stuff is like pure science, but I just think it's like really, it's interesting to me because of that notion of um, what is the convenience of just like hitting the button, right? I, I just think that that is a, like there, there's a there there. And in a place where the convenience of hitting that button does then translate to, we've talked a lot about the quote unquote frontline worker during here. Like it does translate into economic value for other folks. Whereas if you just said like, what's the tip you want to put in? There's, there's this person that's not making as much money and that money doesn't necessarily matter that much to the person that's giving it. And those are interesting, like that's an interesting market dynamic, I think. So I have a love-hate relationship with the touchscreen and the default tipping things. <laughs> of course so you do. I, I, I knew you would. <laughs> I'm now my fingers in the camera. This is like, uh, yeah, I'm like Larry David when it comes to the touchscreen. So, um, I will offer my data science skills for free if someone can give me a similar data set. But here's what I want to do on top of it. I want A-B testing on the Mm. default choices because I feel like the default choices can take that 90 cents of value and completely destroy it. And I'll give you an example. I'll make it an extreme example just for this case. So let's use, let's say your taxi cab 
um, after you ride, you swipe your card, and the, there's three default options, 15, 20, and 25. I think those are fairly reasonable. That seems to be where we've trended as a society. If some cab driver has a custom menu where his default choices are 25, 30, and 35, again, I'm using extreme examples, you can bet I'm hitting that custom tip thing. And you can bet that I'm probably taking a little off what I wouldn't normally give in for his greed with his default buttons. Are you in the same camp as me on that front? I'm not in the same camp as you nearly <laughs> anything when it comes to this kind of stuff. But can I can I throw one more level on that? Because I yeah, I wait, no, just just clearly I'm, answer the question first. Which camp are you in? Are you no, hitting I'm, custom? I'm, no, I'm not hitting custom. Probably there. Oh, except, my but I'm gonna throw one more one more level, which does it relates to it though. Is it's another point that they brought up that I mentioned earlier that I do think relates to this is it does depend on the amount of the ride. Because I think if you, you are likely, even you, even you, Skippy, <laughs> your point now are likely, big yeah. time now. if it's like an $8 ride, you may not hit custom on that. But there's some, there's some number, there's some number over which you are going to hit custom. And so what I think would be fascinating is if you're the taxi driver and you could have a system that actually shifted the default amounts based on the amount of the ride. Because knowing that some, someone is most likely, all else being equal, to hit whatever's on the menu. Like all else being equal, they're going to hit whatever's on the menu because of the calculation thing. However, there's some, there's some number that once you go over that, people are now likely to hit custom. And so based on the amount of the ride, you can increase your tip. Uh, Dugas, can we take a quick aside? Um, I just started a new company. I'm pitching for seed funding. It is this custom navigation screen for payment systems. It uses machine learning and artificial intelligence to customize the tips based on the total amount paid. Um, I'm a fintech, and I think my valuation is about uh, seven million dollars. Are you in? Not for seven million dollars. <laughs> seven billion dollars, though. There I'm we in. go. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a really good idea. That's where my um, passion in this space lies. I can't believe I just uttered that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> like, so because there's so many variables here. If my cab ride is a hundred bucks, I want one of the screens that pops up to say, I, I'm throwing out a dollar figure, maybe this is wrong, to say like eight bucks. You know, like it's not I'm not gonna tip twenty percent on my hundred dollar fare in all likelihood. I'm gonna think of this round number that seems like something that's appropriate for the the transaction, you know? Yeah, eight bucks is way off, but what you I think you get the just it needs to be smart about how it does that. Not everything is a percentage based transaction, um, in my opinion. Yeah. And it, it, the human brain doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. So I I I fully I agree. And I think I think that this the uh economic behavioral economics or economic psychology, whatever it is here, I think is really interesting on the asymmetric asymmetric value creation type of stuff. Like for me as well, there's another Another industry where I think about this a lot is in childcare. I feel like in childcare, the amount that I am paying, like the percent of my income or whatever it might be, like that I am paying for childcare feels like a lot for me. And the amount that that individual is receiving, like relative to the value that they are creating yeah. is not that much. Like, yeah. I'm not saying that the absolute, like the absolute value might be good. Like it might work for them, right. As an individual, I'm not saying that, but I mean, for what they're like, they are, they're making sure like one of the most important things in my life <laughs> is like taking care of, like, it's a very, it's a very valuable service that's being provided, but it's, it's interesting here. Whereas this is the opposite of like the, depending on the amount, right. But the, the two bucks, the three bucks, like 
can make a big difference, especially compounded over the course of a day to this taxi driver. And the mm -hmm. two or three bucks to me, like may not matter all that much. Right. I think that those are it's interesting um, asymmetric value economics that exist in some fields like that. Yeah, uh, I really do. I really do want someone to send me a data set here and I want to polish something up because in the flip side of the coin doogles is for these very short rides, you know, if, if my ride costs four bucks, I still want to tip probably two bucks because yep. it, so that's a, a nice percentage yeah. in the grand scheme of things. Yep. And then there's the other end of the spectrum. And so I agree that those prompts add value, hopefully to both parties. But don't forget that you lose value in terms of credit card transaction fees and other things associated with that. They could be smarter than they are. And I think they should be. And if I was a taxi cab driver, I would customize my screen and I would run AB testing all day long. And then oh. I'd optimize the thing. It'd be so, so much AB testing. You'd, you'd only be doing AB testing, analyze your, your data and not driving is like the problem <laughs> that, you, <laughs> that you would have. So counterproductive. Oh, I really like that. That was good. Thanks for bringing that up. All right, is that a wrap? That's a wrap. Uh, I, gosh, guys, we have so many places to find us this uh, these days. Don't even worry about it. Just uh, listen to the show. If you want to subscribe, that's no, awesome. Do, do, do worry about it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Don't even worry rate. about it. Please, please you can find please us rate. on the interwebs. Yeah, rate and review the podcast. Follow us, whatever your podcast um, does. If you want to get in touch with us, skippydoogles at gmail.com, at skippydoogles on Twitter. And if you want to be a subscriber, which we recommend, either a supporter, right for a monthly plan yeah. or a annual subscriber and you get um, all kinds of inside info uh, that's going to be coming from that please go to skippydoogles.supercast.com and one other thing we started doing now is on our substack which is skippyanddoogles.substack.com in addition to the pod you'll also get the breakdown with all the links you'll get linked to the pod and a breakdown with like the links that we go through that's going to come out uh, on a weekly basis. So you'll be able to go there. If you're like, what was that article that Skippy yep. mentioned? You can go there, find it, click it, do da, and be on your merry way. Dougals, I, I told, I told you there were too many places these days. It's a lot of places. Yeah. I mean, this is why and our social media team is like, it's grown to three avatars in second life are, <laughs> no, <laughs> if, if you want, if you want to visit our virtual picnic table. Yeah. <laughs> All right. yes. See you guys. Thank you.